Hey friends, welcome back to Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible for you, and for that, we are spoon-feeding you the latest research. Here's a quick look ahead at everything that we'll be covering. First off, throwing elbows. Do red-hot elbows with bursitis need aspiration? Second, how do program directors feel about the whole pass-fail grading system for the Step 1 exam? Third, a quick check-in on our friend, the video laryngoscope, to make sure that we're all on the DL with the VL. After that, a review of all things being bitten by a snake. And lastly, the robot revolution. Are we still better at reading EKGs than computers are? This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by The Confident, Rebecca White, Aaron Lacey, Amanda Matthews, and Clay Smith. So here's the first article, titled Efficacy of Empiric Antibiotic Management of Septic Electronon Bursitis Without Bursal Aspiration in Emergency Department Patients out of the Academic Journal of Emergency Medicine. When you're thinking about something that's fluid-filled and infected, the question is always whether or not you want to stick a needle in it to see what's causing the infection. This morbid curiosity is, of course, also going to extend out to possible septic electronon bursitis. Half of these cases are indeed infectious, but if you aspirate it, then you risk creating a chronically draining fistula and nobody wants that. The question then becomes, do we really need to know what's growing in there, or can we just cover the usual suspects, that being gram-positive cocci with our antibiotics? This study was an eight-year retrospective single-center study that looked into 266 cases of electronom bursitis. Only four had aspirations done. 39 were admitted, and 76 did not get antibiotics because they were not considered septic enough. None of the aspirations caused a chronic fistula tract, and all of them grew the usual suspects, namely MSSA, MRSA, group C strep, or, well, no growth. That leaves another almost 150 patients who were discharged on antibiotics without any cultures. With follow-up data on 134 of those patients, it seemed that 88% did just fine with empiric antibiotics, 8 later went on to have aspirations, and 9 were admitted though. So even if we assume that all of the patients that were lost to follow-up failed treatment, then empiric antibiotics still worked 80% of the time, that's not bad. Over half of them got a beta-lactam like cephalexin without any MRSA coverage, and it still went okay. Alright, so it seems like if you're not aspirating these things, you're really not alone. It sounds appropriate to be on the watch for severe cases or with systemic symptoms, in which case you might want to get ortho involved or admit the patient, otherwise home antibiotics looking pretty good at this point. In a spoonful, empiric antibiotics without aspiration for cultures in patients with suspected electronon bursitis is safe and effective. Then we have the second article titled Emergency Medicine Program Director's Perspective on Changes to Step 1 Scoring. Does it help or hurt applicants? Out of the West Journal of Emergency Medicine. So Step 1 of the USMLE is one of those fun standardized tests that medical students get to write after smushing their faces into the books for countless hours. In the before times, that is before COVID I mean, um, the mark that you got on this test was something that residency programs might look at to help pick candidates. This test is now scored as pass-fail, officially as of January. How do program directors feel about that change? This study used a validated electronic survey distributed to emergency medicine program directors of accredited programs. 
Just over 50% with 121 program directors responded, and 73% of them thought that binary scoring would make it harder to objectively compare candidates that they might consider for their programs. The minority thought that it would benefit medical student well-being, and only 20% favored the change overall. Most of the respondents felt that they would have to then more heavily weigh the scores of the Step 2 exam when considering applicants, with 85% of them planning to even have it as a requirement for application. There is sampling bias present here, of course, there's no doubt, with only 50% actually responding to the survey, but it's still thought-provoking. I don't think that shifting the focus to the Step 2 score is really going to promote equity or even improve the quality of candidates selected, but I guess these programs are just going to have to work with what they've got. Honestly, the contents of the Step 1 exam probably don't reflect very well on how good of an emergency medicine doctor you're going to be anyways, so I don't think it's such a loss. In a spoonful, emergency medicine program directors are not very happy about the USMLE's decision to change Step 1 scoring to a pass-fail system. As a result, Step 2 will be more heavily valued. The third article titled Video Laryngoscopy 2.0, How to the Canadian Journal of Anesthesiology. Now, video laryngoscopy has been around for more than 20 years now, and it's honestly becoming standard of care as many think that it should be used first line to make the first attempt the best attempt. It's important we're all on the same page here in terms of terminology, though, since video laryngoscopy isn't just one thing anymore, it's actually many things. The authors of this paper even propose calling modern video laryngoscopy by a different name. They propose video laryngoscopy 2.0, because it's probably not even comparable to the original video laryngoscopy technology when it was first invented. As well, just saying video laryngoscopy really isn't very specific. The first example of this being a problem is in the variety of blades that you can use. Indirect laryngoscopy was first achieved using a hyperangulated blade, but now you have video laryngoscopy on both standard geometry blades and hyperangulated ones. I've certainly made this mistake before, but you can't even refer to the companies anymore like you used to be able to, like Glidescope or CMAC, because they both make blades in all different shapes and sizes. Keep in mind that fact when you're actually documenting too. You can't just say you used a Glidescope, you might want to be more specific. Another thing to be familiar with is the variety of stylets available. Some will come pre-shaped for you, and depending on the type of laryngoscope blade that you're using, you're going to need different curves on your stylets. Something that's also probably less discussed is the limitations of video laryngoscopy. Even though this tool has certainly, really, I mean, probably changed the game, it's not perfect. Difficult airways are still going to exist despite having a camera on the end of your scope. It doesn't even take much contamination to foil your camera view completely, and then you'll wish you weren't using a hyperangulated blade all of a sudden. In a spoonful, don't go neglecting your direct laryngoscopy skills completely, but let's move on from here, making sure that we use the right terms to talk about exactly what we mean when we say video laryngoscopy. After that, we have the fourth article titled Snake Envenomation out of the New England Journal of Medicine. There's a snake in my boot! Really though, I mean, this happens. Snake envenomations are a serious problem. Snakes live on every continent except Antarctica and account for as many as 130,000 deaths per year. So don't be surprised if someone's going to be calling on you to treat a snake bite. Honestly, it's laughably cold right now where I am to think about snake bites, but many of you live in warmer climates, so let's review them. 
To start, let's talk toxins. There are a host of different possible things to worry about, particularly if you don't know a bit the fella. The direct effects are, can, well, I mean, they can be pretty impressive. They can cause swelling and enough pain to mimic compartment syndrome despite normal compartment pressures. Besides that, there can be significant bleeding involved because of consumptive coagulopathy. Bites from pit vipers in particular can cause thrombocytopenia and pretty quickly. There may also be neurological effects, either due to pre- or post-synaptic toxins or a mixture of the two. This can lead to progressive descending paralysis, starting with the bulbar muscles and leading to respiratory compromise. The postsynaptic toxins are the ones that antitoxins are going to be most effective against. To stop presynaptic toxins, you need to give that antivenom very early before they're binding. The blood's all messed up, the nervous system's all messed up, the kidneys, they're not going to do much better. Nephrotoxicity can be due to direct venom effects, rhabdomyolysis, or coagulopathy, which will range from causing AKIs to permanent damage and even CKD. Diagnosis is best made by having the culprit snake, but never advise anyone to try to catch that thing. That's just a good way to have more than one patient. Hope that your patient's buddy maybe thought to take a picture of it before they left for the hospital. Failing that though, the characteristics of the bite and the patient's presentation can help guide management, best to call poison control for help. Don't do anything fancy pre-hospital, there's no need to suck venom out of anything. Just avoid the culprit snake, remove rings and tight clothing, and then get to the hospital. When at the hospital, like I said, call poison control and considering consulting the WHO anti-venom database. If the patient got lucky and there's no envenomation that occurred, it might have been a dry bite. So in that case, you can update their tetanus and then observe them for 6 to 24 hours just in case. If antivenom is available, give it as quickly as possible and give it enough to stop or reverse the clinical effects of the bite. Otherwise, elevate the affected body part, provide analgesia, fluids, and just general supportive care depending on how much your patient deteriorates. In a spoonful, snakes, I mean, they're a global problem, which means that they're your problem. Then we have the fifth article titled, Emergent Cardiac Outcomes in Patients with Normal Echocardiograms in the Emergency Department, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Common practice in most emergency departments is to have all EKGs double-checked by a physician after the computer interpretation, just in case the computer missed something important. Why do we bother doing this? Honestly, an EKG, I'd say it looks like more like something that a computer should be reading than we should be reading, but... Computers don't have the best reputation, they miss things. You know what we do with computers though? We make them better all the time. Does an EKG read as normal still need to be double checked? This was a retrospective review of 989 adult patients from a single center with normal as the computer generated interpretation of their EKG. Of these, originally read as normal, the final cardiology interpretation found clinically significant bindings in 6.1% of them. Most of them were ST T-wave changes, 17% were possible ischemia, 10% were T-wave inversions, and the last 5% were a prolonged QT. So even though the computer was missing some things, it didn't miss anything that would have required emergency cardiac catheterization within four hours of arrival at the emergency department. From this, the authors argue that we may be able to do away with the distraction of having computer-read normal ECGs reviewed emergently. Now, I know what you're thinking. It was my first thought as well. Amal Matu is going to have a field day with this article if he gets his hand on it. Dr. Matu's number one rule is probably never to trust the computer, and this goes way against that. I will personally consider this article to be reassuring. 
I'm probably not dealing with something acute if I see the computer has labeled it normal. But I need much stronger evidence than just a retrospective study of a mere thousand patients before thinking that we don't need to have these ECGs reviewed by a doctor. There are probably less important distractions that we could be getting rid of. In a spoonful, this retrospective study showed that zero of the 1,000 ECGs read as normal by a computer required emergent catheterization. All right, cool. Let's review what did we learn today. First, we're not pimple poppers, so why poke things if you don't have to? Patients treated empirically without aspiration of suspected septic olecranon bursitis did just fine at least 80% of the time. Second, I'd be interested to see how popular a pass-fail system is for the USMLE Step 1 among students, but I can tell you it was not popular among program directors in emergency medicine. Third, video laryngoscopy is not just video laryngoscopy anymore. It's a lot of things. So we need to use accurate terminology when talking about it so that we can compare apples to apples. Fourth, stay away from snakes, everybody, please. I've been bitten by a few snakes in my life, but there's not a lot of dangerous snakes where I live. If you do get a snake bite coming into your emergency department, then you're going to want to use antivenom as quickly as possible and give good supportive care. It's likely you'll have to admit these patients even if just for observation, regardless of what kind of snake bit them. Fifth, we haven't been replaced just yet. A small retrospective study showed that none of the 1,000 ECGs that were read by the computer as normal required emergent catheterization. But that's only so reassuring. Eventually, we won't need to look at the ECGs at all, but I'm not convinced that day is today. Not even for the ones read as normal. And that's all I've got for this week. All their articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.